if you started with a question when you're looking to acquire sites and you say, what are the things you would value if you lived in that neighbourhood? That's a great starting point, but um, we, we come with it with our own perspectives and lens. So it's very important to step out and really try to step into the shoes of those target buyers. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the show. Thanks for joining me. Here we are, first episode back after a little summer break. Had a great time. Been away, been at the beach, been up in the mountains, read a lot of books, ate some nice food, managed to stay in shape these holidays, which has been good. I really enjoyed the break. It was a really nice time to stop and reflect and recharge a little bit. A bit of space often helps to evaluate how things went last year and also to consider what lies ahead. So I'm really looking forward to another dynamic and interesting year and finishing off my project that's under construction. I can't wait for that to be done. I'll also be cracking 100 episodes shortly, so that's something exciting to look forward to in a couple of episodes' time. How was your break? Did you have a nice time? Did you get to go away? Did you get a chance to reflect and set some goals for the year ahead? I hope that you had a chance to. Got a great conversation to kick off the year with a property developer who's doing some great things, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy that. But just before we get to that, here's a quick update on some of my project work. As I said, we've got the project under construction and quite a bit got done over the four or five weeks since Christmas. They've actually started hanging plaster in four of the townhouses, which looks good. They've even put stairs in, so no more clamouring up ladders in those townhouses for me. And the other units have got the face brickwork just about done, and they'll start working on the upper level cladding on those ones as well. So good to see a bit of progress over the break and also that the weather has improved in Melbourne. It's been pretty dry for the last four or five weeks, which is nice. And long may that continue for the next few months. On our other project, I mentioned that we got an RFI from council just before Christmas. So they're asking for some additional reports and information, which we sent back, but we do need to prepare an environmental report, which was a bit of a surprise but we're getting that done now. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes back. So hoping to try and get things moving along on that project as well. And in case you're wondering, I still haven't sold my townhouse that I mentioned in the last episode. Got pretty close with one buyer who's still very keen, but isn't locked in yet. So the campaign goes on. It'll be interesting to see what the next six weeks brings as people get back into looking for property and hopefully we'll find someone who made it their New Year's resolution to buy a property this year. Otherwise, maybe I might have to keep it and rent it out with this booming rental market. Who knows? All right, a couple of quick promo messages before we move into today's guest. One for the book. I had loads of pre-Christmas sales, so hopefully all the people that bought that enjoyed reading it over the summer. If you'd like to read my book, Become a Million Dollar Property Developer, 
then head over to propertydeveloperpodcast.com forward slash book and grab yourself a copy from there. Quick training update. Had loads of people signing up this month. So there's people looking to make 2023 the year of action. If you've decided over the break that this is the year to get started in property development, then be sure to check out my course at www.propertydevelopertraining.com. Actually going to add some additional content to that training this year, a new course in there. So keep an ear out for that. Okay, on to today's guest, Jeremy De Silva from Resolution Property Group. Jeremy has over 20 years experience in residential property development in Melbourne and Southeast Queensland, including senior development roles with Mervac and Macquarie Bank. Jeremy has a law degree and extensive experience in site acquisitions and master plan communities. In this conversation, we cover what Jeremy learnt from working for large corporate organisations, the one key thing that developers can focus on to make their projects a success and stand out from the competition, and also how to deal with markets changing mid-project, which a lot of people may be facing at the moment. This is a great conversation to kick off the year, so let's get straight into it by finding out Jeremy's go-to food. Mmm, chocolate. Any particular type? Got to be chocolate. Uh, Dairy milk, keep it simple. I'm a victim of good advertising in the 80s, right, as I was growing up. Glass and a half. (laughs) Well, I've got two uh, kids who absolutely think that uh, chocolate is one of the main food groups. Yeah. And so... I have to keep getting more and more exotic with the kind of chocolates that I purchase to try and stop them from eating it. So I'm kind of moving towards chocolate with chili in it now to try and keep them away from the chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would frighten them. But you're coming up. We're heading into Easter, right? Chocolate oh. will be Easter eggs will be in the shops pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> My son seems to think that sugar is one of the primary food groups. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You can add telling him Santa Claus isn't real at some point in the future. Not sure how old he is, but yeah, let him keep on to his dreams as long as he can. Uh, we've moved well past that, unfortunately. But right. um, yeah, I've got to come up with something for for chocolate, something bad. But anyway, right. he's a bit of a fiend when it comes to the sugar. But anyhow. Good, I like him already. Uh, well, thanks for joining us on the show. We're here to talk property development as usual, and uh, you're the head of a property developing company that's done some reasonable size projects. So give us a bit of a taste of your background and how you got into property developing. Yeah, sure. Well, I got into property post-uni. I did a law degree at university, which was not not my intended pathway but it was a good alternative to becoming a doctor and I'm pretty happy I, I chose that sliding door moment um, but when I, while I was at uni I did back in the day you were able to specialise pick some electives and property was always a, a kind of personal interest so I was able to through uni do town planning environmental contract construction law uh, graduated just um and then had an opportunity to apply for a job advertised in the paper old school right um for an acquisitions manager role i said to my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife 
I'm just going to throw the hat in the ring and, and see see what comes. Long story short, I got offered the job and I've been in property ever since. And I, yeah, I love it. It's a great industry profession and it's a fun space to be in, not without its challenges, but yeah. So property developing is your third string uh, career choice. Is that fair? Fair to say? <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But yeah. It, it, it's funny. I tell people quite regularly. So law for me, putting aside the technical, it, it, it taught me how to look at a set of facts, identify some issues, apply some rules or logic and then make a decision, not always the right one, but there was a pretty clear process that I've, I've carried through. And um, our, our, our business is a small private development group. We've got a, a tight-knit group of guys that have worked with Fraser, my business partner, and myself through our own property journey, you know, before setting up resolution. Um, you become an all-rounder in that role, yeah, uh, and every day in some form I would use that kind of methodology of thinking through an issue. Um, so, yeah, I do find it, and I do enjoy, weirdly, reading draft contracts, yeah. <laughs> well, I was just about to ask you about that, whether you've caught any strange things over the years in the contracts. You're probably one of the few people that actually goes through them line by line. Well, I, I do, and, and weirdly, again, I, I still like reading planning precedent, VCAT, red dot cases, yeah, I still still enjoy that. Um, but, yeah, I'm still very happy I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. No, I agree reading through the VCAT uh, decisions is very illuminating, sometimes a little bit frightening as well, but uh, you do get a huge amount of insight from them. You, you certainly do, and, and planning from a, from a development perspective is very high up in terms of priorities and you've got to get it right you've got to understand it uh, and it's not black and white you know so that risk sits in gray but also opportunity does so certainly from a planning perspective we've had a long relationship with a couple of town planning groups they go uh, they go the, the the extra mile for us and that'll often also starts at a due diligence phase when we're looking at acquiring new sites. Um, yeah, very important. And what's your view on town planning, the process and how it operates now that you've brought it up? I promised yeah. myself I wouldn't talk about this too much this year. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it is what it is, yeah. Um, and all councils and authorities have their own challenges. Um You've got to be patient, yeah, but you've also got to know your position, argue it, uh, debate it. Um, I wish it didn't take as long as it does because it is an unnecessary time is a cost, you know, in a development project uh, and no one benefits from that. Um, but, you know, does it get fixed? Not sure. Yeah, I agree. It just takes too long for what ends up being a sort of marginal uh difference in the outcome from where you started that's my yeah. frustration yeah yeah shared frustration industry-wide i'm sure and you know when it, when it comes to timelines pressures within a development business time is is so critical we invest a lot of time managing projects via programming and um we use that also to coordinate the whole project team but yeah it's uh 
it's a necessary, unavoidable, evil part of the process, town planning approvals. <laughs> Let's jump back to the beginning. So back yes. to your, your, your starting out, you got the job, the acquisitions manager. Talk us through that. What yeah, sort of that projects a- were you acquiring? Yeah, it was a very exciting time. It's for a private developer up in southeast Queensland on the Gold Coast, but, but operating um, Brisbane Sunshine Coast. And it was a it was an entree into looking for sites, understanding, investigating the market, but also developing kind of a, a strategy for the type of sites. And I was lucky enough to be exposed to larger. Uh, master plan residential communities that was in that first role um i jumped from that after several years and found myself at mervac down in melbourne at a time when mervac was not not to say they're still not at the forefront but they they were winning marquee sites and doing really exciting project work um, and then i landed at macquarie third kind of um role before getting into resolution. Um, so I've, I've been fortunate to be exposed to larger um, master plan residential golf community sites through my career. Um, and that's probably kind of led into part of our strategy and our recent acquisitions for resolution that have kind of reflected some of those learnings over the journey. Uh, which would be what what are those lessons that you're taking into the projects, Jeremy? Yeah, look, um, if I split it up, I guess, into some of those key past work experience. When I was at Mervac, um, a fundamental tenet to their business and the way they develop is to work back from your customer. And we take that through every project we do and we look at acquiring. We start with who is our target what are the target buyer's preferences? And we really drill down into that. Some people, you know, in, in the development industry would probably look at land and maybe conclude it isn't a high design. You know, it's quite simple and straightforward. Um, my experience has been the exact opposite. There's so many moving parts when it comes to a large land area, lots of different sub-markets, and the market changes, yeah? And when, when you're developing a... Uh, a 500 lot community that's five to seven years sometimes you're going through full cycles different stages you need to be flexible um, but certainly Mervac taught me to understand who your market is because at the end of the day you're in the business of developing a product uh, you want it to meet the market expectations um, so we use that um, through all of our projects and and We've got a project down in Cranbourne West we released in October last year, Harley, that's a 181-lot community uh, in Casey in a great infill location. Up front, we put together our project team and we invested a lot of time and effort uh, to really drill down into what is a pretty competitive landscape. People will point to Casey as being high growth, high demand, but there's a lot of competition and there's a a lot of developers doing really interesting things but yeah we've carried that through into into that live project i would say crossing over to my macquarie bank days um that was a really interesting time as well i was fortunate enough to work in a business that they had in joint venture with greg norman doing residential golf community developments 
Um, but Macquarie, the key takeaways for me were really structuring deals and transactions, yeah, um, and, and we use that every opportunity acquisition-wise, we kind of run through four or five options. Um, they were a um, great company to work for. Property was probably one of their smaller elements uh, at the time when I was there and, and, and golf residential working with Norman was pretty exciting for a time. Um, but I think, you know, the, 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 the most critical learning I've taken in 25 years in the industry, and it's come to pass almost with every acquisition and project we've done, when you look back and reflect, it's those established network connections, relationships that some of them date back 20 odd years that you invest, you grow, you build, and they come, the return on that investment is sometimes 20 years down the track, but um, we're, and personally, uh, kind of value those relationships and networks because at the end of the day, it takes a big team to get a development project from, you know, vision to reality. Um, yeah, it's really important to, to cultivate, you know, and grow those relationships because they, they come back. They come back to support you in the long term. Oh, big time. You can't do a project on your own. I say this a lot to people who ask. Like, you just can't yeah. do it on your own. So you need a good team around you. And the better the team, the better you can perform generally. So Agreed. it's really yeah. crucial. And yeah. so just going to Harley and in terms of looking at your end buyers or your target mm. market or however you want to describe them. Yeah. What do you actually mean when you say, well, we do a lot of work looking at what they want? What does that actually entail or look like or result in? Yeah, so for Harley, I'll give you an example. So our project teams in uh, marketing and sales is core projects, our creative ad agencies, Cassette, together with our own development management team. Um, early days with that acquisition when we are in due diligence, we started with that very question. Who is our buyer? What are their motivations? What intrinsic elements of the land and the project that we would develop? What are, the, what are people looking for? And it's when you go through that upfront process and then you're fortunate enough for example when we took the project to market we then had an open day you know, a month after we went to market and we had the opportunity to talk firsthand because we don't do the selling so as developers we are a little bit detached but we had the opportunity to talk firsthand with some of those early stage buyers and to hear them kind of reflect what we had assumed and hoped would resonate to hear them, you know, unsolicited, put to us what went through their mind as they were going through that decision process. Because buying a land home is the biggest investment decision, other than getting married and having kids, it's probably the biggest decision you're going to make in your life. And to hear those people uh, reflect some of the elements that we thought were really important for our project. Um, and going back to that project visioning exercise, um, we did a lot of market comparison, competitive analysis, you know, and that's both data but also getting a feel for the vibe of these projects. So that involves going, pretending to be a buyer, going into their sales centres, looking, you know, at how they communicate their key messaging 
because uh, you can learn a lot, yeah, from, from what the competition are, are doing, but you can also identify some key elements where you might be able to leverage your own project. And from an acquisition strategy point of view, it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but we look for infill sites within growth corridors. Uh, and Harley's a prime example of that where um, that Casey Cranbourne corridor or that section of the Casey corridor is very well established. So we've had an we're, we're plugging into an established neighborhood that has shops, medical schools, we've got a golf course next door to us. Now, if you started with a question when you're looking to acquire sites and you say, what are the things you would value if you lived in that neighborhood? That's a great starting point. But um, we, we come with it with our own perspectives and lens. So it's very important to step out and really try to step into the shoes of those target buyers. Um, critical, critical. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that you go and look at the competition because, again, it's something that I've mentioned to people when they're getting started in an area or just getting started in property development. Mm. It's just so easy. It's so easy to go and find out market intelligence. It's Go and see what the other agents in the area are selling. Go and have a look at their display materials. Check out what the yeah. inclusions are. It won't take you very long to get a pretty good picture about what people want or what the, what's being sold and how much it's being sold for. So yeah. even yeah. the bigger guys do it. They do. They do. And I've got to I've got to confide. We do look at our database regularly to see if there are any names that we know go point to other developers. Um, and we find that, but yeah, I think it, it, it's it's and it's a fun thing to do. To be honest, I, I really enjoy getting in the ro- on the road in the car and hitting some other projects. And when we're looking at, particularly in acquisitions, when we're looking at a somewhat new area to us, you, you really do need to to get a feel for what that community looks and feels like. You know, day to day. Yeah. Is that a Mr. John De Silva that registered with the, <laughs> these opens? I have a few aliases. <laughs> I have a few aliases. There might be a few Ingelbert Humperdicks at Hotmail.com. Oh, surely that can't work, does it? <laughs> uh, I blame my beautiful mum for that. Sunday mornings as a kid, there would be Ingelbert Humperdick on the on the record player back then. But, yeah, he's one of my aliases. But you know what? Sometimes... I take the, the opposite approach and I go full frontal, honest, and say, this is who we are. I'm letting you know. So I'm not a buyer. So when you feel like I'm taking too much of your time and there's a there's a real buyer next, but, but people are pretty open, you know. Um, but, yeah, sometimes you need to act, act like with a bit of stealth. And then with your sales, who are you using for, your, for the selling bit? Is it a project? Agency or yes, it is, local yeah, cool, cool projects we're using for Harley uh, at Cranbourne West, uh, and they've been you know if you look at the the, the real key pieces of the puzzle, uh, they have been wonderful to work with. Great team, um, and we really at a business level and a personal level have some synergies that you know business to business really kind of reflect our own vision of how we want to operate in the in the business world um, but also you know their moniker kind of brand association is you know places with purpose yeah um, and that reflects kind of what we want to do we want to create 
great places for people to live in. Yeah, pretty simple. Um, a fair bit goes into trying to achieve that objective, but um, at the end of the day, I think we're doing well if we've got prospective purchasers, new residents moving in and saying exactly that. What a great place to live in, yeah. And how's the sales going? Sales to date have been good. We um, we launched in October last year um, and don't need to run through all of the head, headwinds in detail, yeah, but if you were... If you're looking to launch a new project, uh, and with Harley, we have made a, um, a decision that came about in part by the vendor's background, but at Harley, we have set what we believe is an increased, much higher bar in terms of sustainability outcomes. So whilst we're developing land, we have design guidelines, which are pretty common you know, within the land development industry. Um, but we have three key sustainable initiatives that drive the standards of the house design at Harley. Minimum seven stars. We know that is coming nationwide, but we also know uh, to date some of the builders haven't been working at that minimum. So we've got a, a mandatory seven uh, minimum seven star rating. We have zero carbon as a, a minimum standard, essentially that means each home produces enough energy for the household annual consumption, yeah? And that's through solar, but also through design elements within the house itself and all electric, yeah? So when we were, we made that conscious decision to have that as part of our offering, um, yet we went to market at a time when construction costs, headlines, interest for <laughs> all of that so not ideal but you can't control those things yeah you just need to understand how you work within that to date we've done about 27 sales in stage one so that's eight a month we're really pleased with that we're conscious that this year is going to be challenging uh, and not so much i think in terms of putting aside the headlines yeah we're not seeing drastic changes in values in, in global development site values or on the retail side of things, um, but we would, you know, we're 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 quietly pleased that we've been able to achieve those sales results to date um, in a challenging environment. Yeah, um, we know our design standards have increased costs associated with getting to that, but we also know the benefits that come for those residents living in those homes and at a wider scale, we think it's a good thing to do, yeah? Um, so to date, really pleased. Interestingly, something that probably reflects Harley's infill location, 70% of our database and buyers are upgraders, which is 180 degrees different to what is happening in the market at the moment generally in the land space because of the pressures of interest rate increases, job security, etc. There's a drive to the cheaper, smaller product. At Harley, we've got the absolute reverse happening, which is a good problem to have in this stage of the, the cycle where we're, we're, we're essentially our bulk of our buyers, the second and third home buyers looking to upgrade um, and that probably reflects 
they're at a stage of life and from a financial position, you know, they've built up equity in their home and they're looking to upgrade. So that's been really pleasing that there is an established market, yet there are buyers viewing coming to Harley as being an upgrade to their, their, their current living environment. So, yeah, really pleased today. And are they uh, locals mm. within 5K? So that's what I found with my buyers. They generally tend to already live within four or five Ks from the uh, project site. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, every one of our buyers today, so we've got a very large database, but every one of our buyers has come within five kilometres of Harley. Yeah, and, and sometimes you kind of look and you go, geez, we've... We've marketed far and wide. You have to to establish a project, yeah. Uh, but now we're getting into the the next phase, looking at what our future releases look like. And yeah, it's it's people that live four hundred meters up the road. Yeah, uh, they love where they live. Um, they want to stay. And, and what we're finding is there is a drive to larger lot sizes, which again doesn't kind of mirror the playbook at the moment yeah generally smaller lots price point get it down um so we're pleased you know but we we, we do have a cross-section of product within the the uh, community you know we've got small lots that should attract first-time buyers and investors it just seems to be at the moment that might reflect our marketing as well where people are coming one i think to learn about the differences of living in Harley, you know, from a design um, sustainability point of view, but they're also kind of going to, this is the last pocket of land within that two to three kilometre um, radius within that Cranbourne West. So we are benefiting, I think, from from the fact that um, there's not a lot of Englobo land in that part of Cranbourne and there's a lot of established amenity through a greenfield corridor, yeah. And what's your advice for maybe smaller or medium-sized players out there with projects who are facing those headwinds that you mentioned and you've also touched on the fact that you've been through cycles with projects? What's your advice for them about dealing with what may be a softer market with escalating build costs? Yeah, Um, we're, we're living that every day. Um, in our own business, and we are a small business. You know, there's my, my partner Fraser and I. We've got a tight team in our development and marketing team. But one of the benefits of that is we are nimble uh, and we can flex uh, and we can respond. We're very fortunate in our business. We have capital partners that have a like-minded uh, in in that sense. Um, my advice to to developers. Uh, at this point is, uh, and and I won't I won't mention the name, but I'll give you a quote. Things are often not as bad as what you hear and read when things are tough, but equally things are never as good when you're not. So trying to have an even keel as best you can. Um, and it turns, and it turns. Melbourne, in a land market sense, has a long-established history of recovering quickly, um, and that's because Melbourne benefits from 
population growth. There's some of those key drivers in our industry that we're almost there. You know, I think we will hit peak interest rates this year. The minute that happens, you'll see consumer confidence start to grow. Um, and the, the the slowdown, we had to have it. It, it was running so hard and fast post-COVID and with the government incentives, our segment of the market went nuts, literally went, no one could have predicted that coming out of a pandemic, that that would happen. Um, we'll keep it in mind when the next pandemic happens to buy more sites, you know, when the sky's falling in, we wish we had done that. But yeah, my advice would be, it's going to turn, um, be flexible and you need to, you need, to test those assumptions, that you, the underlying strategy and assumptions for your project, you need to continually test those because they will change over time. And, and that's, if you link your business, your product and your strategy to market, you, it, it will move and change. But yeah, that would be my advice to, to people at this point. And I'll be, I'll be happy once the headlines start to, and you're starting to see it, Justin, literally, Headline construction costs. Have we peaked? You know, we know immigration is going to literally go from zero to hundred real quick, and we know that the benefits that that puts into the, the economy, but also the, the the property market generally. And just have you got an example of what being flexible means? Mm. Um, I'll give you a, a, a case in point. It's one of our projects, but we're in um, planning approval phase. We are having to negotiate with the council to rezone land. It's in the urban growth boundary, but it is a small infill site, so it sits outside the standard VPA and council process. So council is the lead authority. Um, during due diligence, we had a concept vision and a product mix and the assumption of tree retention and how much open space. Uh, and, and we are having to flex big time only six months after going unconditional, yeah? If we held fast to those assumptions and objectives, or the objectives haven't changed, but how it comes together in a master plan and a product mix and how it looks and feels, um, if we were inflexible, we would have real difficulty in progressing quite a complex planning approval process. But as you face that challenge, and, and that challenge specifically goes to how much yield and how many lots, yeah? Um, but you need to dig deeper. How many lots and yield is only one part of the equation. At the end of the day, it's, it's what revenue and cost and what the total project looks like. So we're now open to some different product mix and product that we would not have envisaged putting into this project. It's being driven by the necessity to make up for some loss of land. But that loss of land, at this point, we go, geez, you know, you're wanting us to keep so many trees, so much open space. Okay, the immediate feel is you're impacting our feasibility. When you dig a bit deeper and look at it, there's opportunities that come out of those challenges. We've got more parkfront product. We've got the ability to have product in a greenfield land estate that you might associate more with the inner ring, 
you know, in terms of townhouse type built form product. Um, so that's a case in point and, and we're having to do that. And I can guarantee that we will make these changes. We'll get our planning approval and the market will have changed again. <laughs> By the time we're ready to release, yeah, we've got a 12 or 18 month planning time frame. So yeah, just don't be too steadfast on those assumptions because you need to flex. And what about over that sort of six or seven year period project where you can maybe get something locked in, you know, in year three and yeah. something changes in year five, year six? Yeah. How does yeah. That work? Look, we're fortunate with land that you stage those larger projects. Yeah. We generally do 50 lots as a stage. Um, and we have the opportunity, unlike when you do a high-rise, say, apartment project, maybe you can do some internal configuration changes once you're underway with land. So long as you set the expectations with council that you will be coming back for amended plans, we do it every stage before we go to, to market on a new stage. We make sure. So at Harley is an example, yeah, we are currently looking at, okay, the next six, nine months, it looks to us like we should be providing bigger lock to the market because that's where the demand is, yeah, even though we have some smaller sub 300 square metre lots. Um, you want to meet the market? We can have it there, but if there aren't buyers in that space, so we do that regularly, and that's a benefit of a staged land subdivision, even if it might go through a full cycle or you might be mid-cycle when you start or end of cycle like, like we were with, with Harley at Cranbourne. Um, but, yeah, you've got the ability to, to redesign, reshape um, and, and meet that buyer demand, whatever is prevailing at the time. Very good. And then your advice for someone sitting out there who's a property developer that's wanting to take their business to the next level, what would you yeah. be thinking to say to them? Don't do it. No, just kidding. <laughs> I would say two things, and this is lived experience. Um, have a plan, prepare and work very, very, very hard and be patient, yeah? Um, you read the overnight sensations, you, it, it takes time. So be patient. You'll always be looking forward, yeah? Um, always looking to see how you can improve. And we talked about the other, earlier about seeing what competitors are doing. You can learn a lot from the industry, um, particularly if you're, you're starting out, and always ask questions. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good advice out there, a lot of good people to, to help you through your early, particularly the early phases of building a business. And what about your own experience in terms of receiving some good advice? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I'd taken all of the good advice I've been given <laughs> over the years. Um, but probably the, the, the key takeaway, and it was outside of a business relationship, but at the end of the day, be yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and by that, I mean, look at your strengths, your weaknesses, know yourself. Yeah. And um, in creating a business, it's, it's like my business partner, we both very similar in ways, but very different. Uh, and so our strengths and weaknesses kind of balance each other out. Um, if they're a sole traders, just take good advice from people. Um, 
for me, it's it's be yourself. Don't don't pretend to be something else. Just be yourself. And you've kind of, you sort of intimated that you didn't take some good advice. What's perhaps something that you look back on reflecting and going, mm, maybe I should have done that instead or done that better or not done that at all? Yeah, look, it, it probably goes to I was I was always very ambitious, you know, and so I was in a hurry. I wanted to get through my first job, then I wanted to get through Mervac, then I wanted to get to Macquarie. I think looking back... There were still some learnings, and you learn on the job all the day, yeah. Um, but um, a piece of advice at the time to me was when you do go into your own business, make sure you do it once you have a project fully seeded for the business. There's a lot of people out there, and we, we talk to capital partners all the time, yeah, about new acquisitions. We've learned you have a much more meaningful discussion and engage people when you have the opportunity, not the one that you're going to go and get, yeah. Um, so I didn't do that. I had lots of opportunities but just hadn't bedded one down. So I kind of spun wheels for a bit of time. Uh, and when you go from great cash flow to limited cash flow until that project gets to being live, yeah, you there's better ways to do it. I have no regrets. <laughs> and then looking back over the career and the projects that you've worked on, what's one that stands out for you, whether that's for a particularly good reason or maybe for a sticky reason? Or yeah. Got, got a, um, a favourite child? Have a favourite child. It, it was from a pu- previous life when I was at Murbach, but it, it goes to a period in my career, but also the, the work that it involved. It's a project called The Heath down next to Kingston Heath Golf Club. Uh, it was a fully integrated development. Mervac uh, has a business model where everything is in-house. The design, the construction, the marketing and sales and the development team. So that project was an awesome experience for me because it wasn't just the land being designed and developed and then leaving it for people to build homes. That project, we built everything, and it was in a location where every other developer who had tried to buy the site had looked at it as a land play. Um, I learned a lot, uh, and and working in Mervac with that team of specialists all under the one umbrella was a was a was, and it's a legacy project. I still bang on when people, my business partner Fraser goes, "Enough of Mervac, mate, seriously." <laughs> Um, but it's a good one. Yeah, so the, the Heath down next to Kingston Heath is a favourite when I look back. Very good. Well, we're getting towards the end. We'll let you go shortly. Any parting comments or things you wanted to touch on? No, it's uh, it's been an enjoyable first-time discussion, Justin. I've appreciated the opportunity to have a talk, and I hope to maybe we could circle back later in the year and see how things are traveling for both of us i can give you an update on how things are traveling at harley it'll be a challenging but interesting year of opportunity i think yeah i'm not sure what to make of what's going to happen this year so mm. as you say i hope uh, interest rates i think will stabilize and then i think there's not going to be some massive jump in property prices mm. but hopefully they'll strengthen a little bit as you say population's going to keep coming in i think victoria and melbourne probably pick up about 30 percent of 
those new people sydney probably get the other 30 and then the rest spread around a bit so there's lots of people coming in so there's going to be demand on property it's just a case of writing it out correct we'll get there yeah which yeah if you look at a graph of australian property over however long it goes from the bottom left up to the top right it certainly does and 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 with the passage of time that is what happens yeah there'll be some bumps along the way but yeah yeah just don't zoom in too close to that <laughs> see the peaks and drops <laughs> unless you're trying to condition a vendor that his land value is maybe not what it was 12 months ago yeah. oh actually now that you've mentioned vendor just before we go yes. you previously said at macquarie um structuring was something that's really important yeah and you said yeah. there were sort of four or five uh key options that you had i was curious yeah. about what they might be or why they're important yeah um there are ways to get to a price that a vendor wants yeah uh there's an outright sale there's deferred terms there's development agreements there's ways you can structure to minimize costs that go from the developer but don't land in the vendor's hands yeah uh, there's joint ventures you can go from the spectrum of real simple to really complex um we're about to embark on our first meeting with a vendor on a site actually in southeast queensland but we will sit down and we will talk and talk a bit more to get an understanding of where he sits yeah in that spectrum um at the moment we're not seeing land values on development sites going down but we are seeing opportunities to get better structured deals that maybe 12, 18 months ago, vendors rightly were saying, don't really need to do that because X, Y, and Z will be here next week with a clean deal. Um, there's this window of opportunity now. So Macquarie was, the learnings there, because they came from a banking, investment banking background kind of philosophy, uh, there are so many ways to structure a deal where the vendor is getting what he wants and the purchaser is able to pay what the vendor wants but to de-risk or manage timing yeah the, the, there's lots of options but it's really important i think from an acquisition point of view because sometimes you can win a site by having a an element to your deal structure that maybe somebody else hadn't thought about yeah and it's risk return and it's shared risks shared reward sometimes um yeah pretty 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 key but yeah um you've got to look at those options early days particularly the bigger sites that take a lot of money and a lot of time to go the runway is a long runway yeah to get it off the ground yeah awesome well that's great thanks for sharing that with us jeremy it's been really awesome having you on the show if people want to find out more about you or about resolution where should they head they should head to resolutionpg.com.au to get an understanding of our business and our projects, um, or they can get on the LinkedIn if they like and give me a buzz, shoot me an email. I'm, I'm open to uh, talking to, to, to anyone that might come out of this podcast. So thanks for the opportunity, Justin. Oh, you might regret saying that, uh, <laughs> Jeremy, when your phone blows up. Yeah. Anyway, Thank thanks, for, thanks for being a great guest on the show and sharing your insight with us. I've really enjoyed talking with you. So thanks again. Terrific. Have a great day.
You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.